From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, our program is dedicated to the legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. It's been 50 years since the iconic leader for human dignity was assassinated. We'll discuss his life and his impact on 21st century America. Coming up on the public morale. Welcome to the public morality. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. what will happen now we've got some difficult days ahead but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop I don't mind like anybody I would like to live a long life longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Those are excerpts from Martin Luther King's final public address on April the 3rd, 1968. Last week, April the 4th, 2018, 
was the 50th anniversary of the death of Martin Luther King. We want to remember the one that labor leader A. Philip Randolph called our nation's moral conscience. So we begin this broadcast by paradoxically starting at the end. Here is the Reverend Billy Kyles recounting King's final moments. Of the Lorraine Motel, Ralph Abernathy was still in the room. Jesse Jackson was on the ground. Andy Young was on the ground. He was leaning over the railing. Martin Luther King was leaning over the railing that separated the down from the up. He was talking to Jesse. I said, guys, come on, let's go. We have a rally tonight. I said, okay. I turned to go down the steps. I got two, three steps. And the shot rang out. Kapow! Hit him in the side of his face. Knocked him to the floor. Knocked one of his shoes off. Some having a nightmare. But the nightmare was that I it was, it was real. That was the nightmare. Blood was everywhere, gushing from his face. So much blood. I ran in the room to call an ambulance. The operator had left the switchboard, so we couldn't get a phone. So I hollered to the policeman. They were coming from the fire station across the street. Well, I hollered to them, call an ambulance on your police radio. Dr. King has been shot. And the police said, where did the shot come from? So there's a famous pointing picture of us pointing to the building where the shot came from. Blood everywhere, knocked one of his shoes off. The ambulance came and took him where I told him to. And we waited. And we waited. And we waited. We waited. Finally, and I don't know how this happened, but finally the word came. We never used the word death. They said, they never said he died. Never said that. Never used. We said we lost him. Whatever one says about the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., we cannot miss the absurdity, at least by the standards of the status quo. King had an earned doctorate at 28 years old. He was the youngest person at the time to win the Nobel Peace Prize. He turned down major pulpits in America and also abroad. He even turned down an offer to serve as president of Xavier University. But instead, on April the 4th, 1968, he lay dying on a concrete floor of a cheap motel in Memphis, Tennessee. He was in Memphis fighting for the dignity of sanitation workers, a precursor to his larger Poor People's Campaign. Here is an excerpt uh, from King talking about his upcoming campaign, one that he did not live to see come to 
fruition. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And this is what we are faced with, and this is a reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. It is popular in the American narrative to see King's shift to poverty as something that occurred late in his ministry. But here are excerpts from King's remarks at the March on Washington. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men Yes, black men as well as white men would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. Nineteen sixty-three is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content, will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, we can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities, We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. 
We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. These excerpts from King's most famous speech demonstrate that back in 1963, his analysis was not limited to the southern region of the country as most would offer, but focused on America at large. On this score, it is important to recall that the time frame for King was a short one. From the Montgomery bus boycott which catapulted King onto the national stage and his assassination in Memphis, was a mere 13 years. And if I were to use a jazz analysis, King's social justice career should not be compared to the legendary Duke Ellington, whose longevity led in part to his greatness. Instead, he was our John Coltrane. Could we not view King's life and mission as a love supreme? Was it not a four-part devotional suite that began in Montgomery, soared over the nation's capital to show America the could-be-delied dormant, challenged the nation's ethos about racism, militarism, and poverty, and ended with the dignity of sanitation workers always committed to a love ethic? King's productivity and intellectual evolution was astounding. And like Coltrane, that type of sustained intensity could only possess a short shelf life. A shooting star whose likes would never be seen again. King's autopsy placed his age as a man much older than his 39 years would suggest. And like Coltrane, King was asking a lot of his audience to share a vision that it was unable to fully comprehend, experimenting with the American experiment in new and radical ways, taking seriously the words that formed a nation rather than jingoistic rituals that justify a cheap form of patriotism. Now there's a tendency to mold such genius so that it fits the contours of our understanding. As a result, we've successfully created a non-abrasive post-assassination version of King, conveniently sanitized by history. This particular king is universally loved, does not create discomfort, but bears scant similarity to the man who actually lived. This is how the same segment of King's drum major instinct, which was used to eulogize him at his own funeral, also serves today as an advertisement in this year's Super Bowl
We'll be back. If any of you are around, when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. And every now and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the wall question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to call those who were naked. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major. Say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. And that's all I want to say. If I can help somebody... As I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word of song, if I can show somebody he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. If I can do my duty as a Christian, if I can bring salvation to a world once wrought, if I can spread the message as the Master taught, then my living will not be in vain. Yes, Jesus, I want to be on your right or your left side. Not for any selfish reason. I want to be on your right or your left side. Not in terms of some political kingdom or ambition. But I just want to be there in love and in justice and in truth. And in commitment to others so that we can make of this old world a new world. As the poet Carl Wendell Hines noted, dead men make such convenient heroes. 
They cannot rise to challenge the images we would fashion for their lives. So we have the luxury of creating the Martin Luther King of our immediate desires rather than the one who challenges us to be better people. How is it that King is now used by the status quo to justify its opposition to the discomfort of change? We tried out this harmless King, take his words out of context to erroneously suggest that our primary disagreement with those who seek change is not their issue per se, but rather their methodology. Perhaps there's no better example of this than former Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed, who criticized Atlanta protesters for blocking a highway last summer. The message was that we're respecting their First Amendment rights, but we're the home of Dr. Martin Luther King. And the only thing that I ask is that they not take the freeways. Um, that's everybody. That's your mom, my family, your families, and Dr. King would never take a freeway. I understand that this is just ge this generation's protest, but um, during the civil rights movement, they spent more time on making sure that everybody got home safe uh, as they did in the actual protest itself. And so let's just let this be uh, the best version of ourselves. Mayor Reed effectively illustrates how easy it is to create the Martin Luther King of our dreams. When Mayor Reed says that Martin Luther King would never take a freeway, was he unaware of the Selma campaign, arguably the most iconic moment in civil rights history? See, more than the Dodge Ram Super Bowl ad, this is a misappropriation that is dangerous to the King legacy. The danger in creating this falsified king is that he possesses no relevance to the present generation. This king does not make people uncomfortable, which is the pathway to change. Change and comfort are oxymorons. The authentic king understood there could be no change until the status quo was made uncomfortable. In Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, he writes, So the question is not whether we will be extremists. But what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? Is that not the same question before us in the 21st century? Will we be extremists for hatred or for love? Or will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? Will we be extremists for war or for peace? Three strikes are for second chances. How about higher education, the prison industrial complex? Will we be extremists for revenge or for forgiveness? Coldness or concern, hatred or hope? In the complexity of the human condition, there are no easy answers. But the legacy of Martin Luther King reminds us there is only one way that leads to that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics, 
North Carolina. The Pullman Corral is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Pullman Corral, I'm Byron Williams. But I know 